All right, so this story takes place in the 80s. Does that sound familiar? If you listen to this program, I'm pretty sure you've heard me say that before. Anyway, back in 1986, when I was just 16 years old, I was a budding, young, high school DJ, and I got super into the music of my guest today on the program. I talked to his publicist, and I told him as much, and he said, I'm going to tell him, because he comes in the office all the time, and we're going to send you something. Well, a week later, a package came, and there was a note. The publicist wrote this. Hey, Alex, here's your autographed kit. He was really stoked to hear that you dig his tunes, and he told me to tell you that you will be included in his will. I knew that wasn't true, but he did will me a signed poster. And I'll tell you all about that in a second. Spoiler alert, I still have it. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. I got high, but I'm still feeling low. Walking in the rain with no place to go. Searching for something that I know. I need some New Jersey rock and roll. There's a pain in my heart, a pain in my soul. Thoughts in my head I can't control. The way I feel couldn't be more cold. I need some New Jersey rock and roll. Rock and roll. That is the music of my guest today on the program, Ben Vaughn. Let me tell you a little bit about Ben Vaughn. Oh, but first I have to go back to that poster thing. All right. Let me tell you about the poster, then I'll tell you about Ben Vaughn. The poster Ben Vaughn signed for me said, Hey, Alex, hang this in your bathroom. And 36 years later, it's hanging in my bathroom. It's in the guest bathroom. Whenever somebody comes over to stay at the house, they use the bathroom and they walk out and they say, who's Ben Vaughn? So it turns out signing that poster for a 16-year-old ended up being great publicity. Slow publicity, but great nonetheless. Anyway, back to that question my guests always ask. Who is Ben Vaughn? Well, I'm about to tell you. The New Jersey-born Ben Vaughn has put out close to 20 albums in his career, including personal favorites of mine like Beautiful Thing, Mood Swings, and Ben Vaughn Blows Your Mind. Aside from his own albums, Vaughn has produced records by Ween, Low Straight Jackets, Nancy Sinatra, and Charlie Feathers. Not only that, but he's had his songs covered by everyone from Marshall Crenshaw to Deer Tick, and he's collaborated with Alex Chilton, Alan Vega, and Rodney Crowell. Vaughn loves punk and surf and rockabilly and folk and country and the blues, all of which explains the versatility of his collaborations. And if that wasn't an impressive enough resume, let's add these two career highlights. He penned the themes for both Third Rock from the Sun and That 70s Show. Oh, and he hosts the radio show The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn. Let's not forget that because it's one of the best radio shows out there. All right, so I know this story started in 1986, but we're going to head back there because his new album, The World of Ben Vaughn, will be out on vinyl only, just like his 1986 debut. So we're not coming full circle. We're already there. 
Now, there will be a digital and CD release in May, but for now, vinyl only, just like the old days. The world of Ben Vaughn demonstrates his musical dexterity, yes, but it also showcases his brilliant songwriting. Filled with humor, wisdom, and grace, Vaughn's work is always soulful, introspective, and impossible to resist. And you know what else? He's really fun to talk to. This is his second time on the show, so welcome him back. Here's me and Ben Vaughn having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I spoke to you was instrumental stylings I believe that's right instrumental stylings and it was so funny because we we had this conversation and somehow you and I were talking about that Crosby Stills and Nash song remember the trained America that Marrakesh song yeah yeah and this guy wrote this he wrote this nasty note but in a weird way he complimented you it was very weird he wrote he was just going on and on about how angry he was that we hated that song and then he said he said, Alex, you could never write a song as good as that. Ben Vaughn could, but you can't. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What? I was like, Ben Vaughn could write a much better song than that. Well, I just changed my mind. I love that song. And I love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I still hate him. Okay, well, you know, you have that right. <laughs> <laughs> How are things going? Are you, um, are you pretty busy these days? Getting busy again, yeah. Now that the uh, COVID um, lockdown uh, chapter is pretty much behind us, I'm uh, I'm on stage again. I'm going to be going to Spain for a for a ten city tour in May. That's going to be great, and I'll be playing in, on the island of Mallorca. Wow! During that tour, which I'm a, I'm a big fan of Robert Graves and uh, Alan Silto, the writers, and they they live there, so I'm going to explore where they lived and the whole bit it's gonna be great didn't silto write loneliness of the long distance runner yes he did and he also wrote saturday night sunday morning which Uh, i haven't read is that great oh man it is so good it is so good and he's considered the father of the angry young man movement in england with john osborne to play right which led up to the first them album being released in the uk was called angry young them so it all comes together. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he was a British guy, so I, he found himself in Mallorca. Did he, did he live there to the, uh, for the rest of his life, or was he just sort of just there for a bit? Well, back and forth. He got out of the RAF with tuberculosis, so he was living in Mallorca because of the climate, recovering. And it turned out there were a lot of expatriates, a lot of writers and uh, theater people, English-speaking uh, expatriates, their uh, writers, poets, and uh, he fell in with that crowd. And Robert Graves was one of them. Yeah, Graves was great. You know, it's interesting. Like I read Long Distance Runner, and then I also read Stop Time around the same time I was in college. Remember Stop Time by Frank Conroy? I do. Yes. Another. That's an American angry young man. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 
but but then um there's a little movie version of long distance runner and i remember it wasn't being like it wasn't terrible no it has tom um courtenay in it yeah oh yeah it's pretty good it's pretty yeah, good it was pretty good um do you find that you have uh, as much time to read these days are you still a prolific reader i am uh, more so than ever uh lockdown i ended up reading about three books a week during lockdown, I really went back to reading, which has always been, besides music, you know, escapism. I'm, I'm very prone to being pulled away from reality into a piece of music or a radio program or a film or literature. Um, and during lockdown, I was jumping around. Um, you know, I'd be reading one, one piece of fiction, one piece of history, and then maybe a music book at the same time. So I was always reading more than one thing at once, but never the same genre. Do you find that the pandemic actually like kind of changed the stuff that you were attracted to? Like, because I found like musically, I found I wanted to listen to really fast. Like I found myself going back to the undertones during the lockdown. I wasn't, I wasn't going Nick Drake. <laughs> <laughs> um, the undertones is always a good place to go to no matter what's going on, really. I mean, Teenage Kicks is maybe the greatest record ever made. Yeah. I think you could actually hook it up to a machine and scientifically test it. And, and, and that would be true. It's so good. Um, I don't know. I, uh, I went back to a lot of, I, I rediscovered Kurt Vonnegut, went back and read all of his stuff. And, but I also um, discovered Maupassant, mm. Aguita Maupassant, who I never read before. And I love, I, I, I heard of him all these years, you know, and got back into Silito and, um, I did a lot of rereading of things, Zorba the Greek, uh, books that I read maybe 40 years ago. Wow. Kind of got back into it. Um, it's kind of like pulling out the old record collection, you know? Yeah, and I've been sort of, you know, we are men of a certain age, and I've been thinking that where we are, you know, things do start to change in terms of, I mean, like the music I loved, um, I still love it, but I kind of love it in a different way. And the books I loved, I understand them in a different way. I, it's that the literature doesn't change, the art doesn't change, but we change and that our understanding of it changes, right? I completely agree with you. I, I, I just reread My Life by Chekhov. And um, it's probably the fourth time I've read that because it's my favorite story ever. And again, it was... I was, I was, uh, it's almost like when you come out of the subway in New York City, when you're younger, you always know where East is or West is. And then you come up 40 years later and you go the opposite direction and realize, oh, wow, I'm looking at it from West to East. Mm. Like I'm going up Fourth Street and I'm heading East when I used to, it used to always lead me West. That's how I feel when I, when I revisit older pieces of music. My perspective is different now, you know, and my compass, I guess, is different. It's weird because like, like Teenage Kick still does for me what it always did, but like maybe, I don't know, I'm trying to think like, a, like, a, like maybe, um, you know, a Drug Squad by The Clash doesn't, even though I still love it, it just doesn't quite give me the same thrill, whereas some stuff does, some stuff makes it, some stuff doesn't, and why that is, we'll never know. Yeah, the vulnerability of that lead vocal, though, on uh, Teenage Kicks is um, I don't think I noticed it being that vulnerable, vulnerable before. Well, when I listen to it now, I'm like, oh man, I, that, that voice, you know, uh, a, very, uh, a very vulnerable voice. 
Yeah, and I think I always go back to that Smith's line where he says, has the world changed or have I changed? And it's like, well, the answer has to be us. And that that's probably a good thing. That's true. That's true. Like you know? a tree, yeah, like a tree that you drive by every day for years and years, one day can have a different significance, but the tree did not change. You did. Right. You changed around it for your own work, like for your own stuff. Did you did you rediscover elements of your music that you had, I don't want to say forgotten or wasn't or wasn't thinking about, but did it did it sort of reboot you in a way, or did you feel you were just continuing where you left off? Oh no, no, it became more important to me because it became a survival skill, you know, during lockdown. Um, I found myself completely alone during lockdown, uh, which is not what I anticipated. I had a lot of things scheduled. I was going to be touring in Europe and I had recording sessions planned and all kinds of things and it all just stopped. And I went back into my music. I started, you know, I was writing songs and I started recording this new album I did um, during that time. And it was really an amazing, some of it felt the same and some of it felt brand new, but I am pretty proud. I, I, I finally figured out what the fourth string on the bass guitar does. That was, <laughs> that was, that was a big moment for me. <laughs> what does it do? Uh, if, if, you have, if you have to ask, you'll never know. <laughs> i can't explain it there are no words that's funny though but you're like oh this is how this thing works i've always avoided that string on bass you know <laughs> i finally i finally figured out why it's there in terms of like proficiency um you know did you did you find that you were that you were putting in long hours with art you know like like with the lockdown and i know we've talked about it so much in the last couple of years among ourselves but did you find that your work ethic actually got, in some ways, got better or, or was mm. it the same? Definitely better because I wasn't interrupted yeah. by, any, by anything, you know, like the phone wasn't even ringing and nobody was coming over. I wasn't being invited anywhere because there was nowhere to go. And um, I didn't want to watch the news all day long. Um, my sleep habits changed too. Like I would just stay up all night like I, like I used to when I was 20 and just discovering recording, you know. Because uh, it didn't matter if I was a mess the next day because I didn't sleep. Who cares? It's lockdown. <laughs> right. like, where right. am I going to go? Where am I going to go? You know. The feeling of 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 being alone. I it made me think too. I thought to myself like maybe I shouldn't be alone. I thought because I'm. I've always said this, but like I'm good at it. You know, I I've never I'm not, I don't have a problem with it. I'm actually I have a I have a facility for being by myself. But I'm not sure it's the healthiest thing. Was there? Was there ever a moment where you went, I need more people around me? Oh, definitely. Um, There's a one point where, where, I, where um, I thought, you know, I would even pay a cover charge to go see a band I know sucks. <laughs> <laughs> like, just, I just want to be in a bar where there's music. I don't care if the band sucks. I don't care if it's, if, if it's open mic blues jam night. I'm, you know, I'm there, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. Well, you know, it was a, it was a hard time. You know, we all got a little wiggy. We all um, we all lost lost it every now and then because it's not natural, you know. And I'm really good at being alone, and I can entertain myself or you know really well with reading and listening to music, and writing music myself or recording. But it, it was it was too much to ask, you know. That much alone time was it got you know it got bizarre every now and then. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I was like, oh, Jaws in Russian. I'll give it a shot. 
Oh, you were in worse shape than I was. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, Ben. Are you okay is, now? Are you okay now? Yeah, I'm good now. Okay, no, good, like, good. No, because it's odd in Russia. I'm worried. I'm, like, I'm, I'm worrying about you now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what I, here's the thing. I'm, the question I'm going to ask you is what did you learn about yourself? But I'll, I'll tell you mine. And I'm curious to hear how it stacks up with you because I'm a writer and I found during the pandemic that I went, you know what? Like time is finite. I don't feel that sort of like endless road in front of me. It feels like that endless road is mostly behind me. And I thought I have an urgency now to get the books written that I want to write. Like, let's get down to business. Let's get going. That's, that was the big thing I learned is like, I want to, I want to fire up the creative flow and, and work harder and faster. What about you? Um, not harder and faster. I naturally got pulled into the vortex of uh, continual creativity though. Um, it just happened. It wasn't really as conscious or like any kind of um, thought that maybe, you know, I'm wasting time. It was like all of a sudden I had all the time in the world and I was thrilled. Actually, for the first six months, I was the happiest guy in the world because I, I had a bunch of songs that were half written ideas, um, all kinds of projects that I had been planning to work on. And all of a sudden I had the time to do them all and not have to even face the idea that I'm being antisocial by being a workaholic because there was no social thing to be anti towards. Right. <clears throat> so you couldn't, you know, be accused of being antisocial, which was a, you know, a relief for people like me because a lot of people, uh, they want you to think that you should be with people all the time. And I'm, I'm an extrovert and an introvert. I'm both. Uh, there's really no, I don't see any reason why you have to choose one or the other, really, you know, and, uh, but I'm really good at being an introvert, really good at it. And I can go for long periods of time and the work ethic just, um, it kicked in naturally. So I, I followed the same path as you, but I think it was maybe there was a less of a conscious uh, declaration of urgency. As, as a thought exercise, if somebody said to you like, Hey, Ben, uh, we're going to give you, uh, you know, X amount of dollars, take four weeks and go to this writer's colony and somewhere and just produce art for four weeks. Do you think you would have been as productive in that situation as you were during the pandemic? Probably not. No, because I would be socializing and playing bongos around a bonfire at night and passing a bottle of wine around why else would why, that's what a writer's colony is in my mind <laughs> right that's that's exactly what i was thinking too i would probably yeah. start smoking cigarettes again you know for the heck of it you know <laughs> 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 you know it's an opportunity to be a bon vivant you know yeah um no i i'm i'm a solitary uh i'm a solitary worker i don't workshop my stuff i don't really collaborate with people until i've finished writing and a lot of times my my process is usually pretty private and solitary and then playing with musicians and touring and, and being out in nightclubs and everything that's incredibly sociable you know so i get the best of both worlds in my life when it and comes that, to time and that, ba that balance got knocked off during during covid you know for like a year and a half right um so that was a strange time i learned a lot about myself i'm i'm uh i'm very happy that i came out on the on the other end maybe more sane than i was before because uh, priorities became very clear to me you know and and uh self-care became very clear to me 
in self-care in terms of like just general health? Uh, well, physical health and also spiritual um, and emotional health. Um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big um, self-help guy, but I like reading that stuff. I always used to go to Barnes and Noble and I would just go to the self-help aisle and I would just pull these books off the shelf and read them. And some of them were ridiculous and some were really great, but I always felt better when I left. Like I felt like I had something had healed in me. Hard to explain, you know, and same thing with religion. Like I'll read some Buddhism or even, you know, the Bible and I'm not really a believer, but I feel better afterwards, more spiritually centered. So I explored a lot of that stuff during, during lockdown, just to make sure that I'm not going over to the dark side, you know? Yeah. So it provided that kind of balance. That's interesting. That sort of like that gravitational magnet pull to self-help, like what could go wrong? Yeah, it can't hurt, right? Right. It can't hurt to to be uh, checking that stuff and you know absorbing some of that stuff and and you can throw out what doesn't work for you and keep what does. You know, it's uh, it's a process I like. I mean, I'm I'm always working on myself, uh, always trying to lighten the load that uh, just being alive on the planet Earth is you know that you inherit, but just by being a human being, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'm always trying to have that be you know have less drama in my life and less heaviness you know i sort of i'm operating under the idea that like the responsibility we have is to be a little bit better today than we were yesterday not massively but just incrementally and it, it sounds like you're sort of of that same mind where it's like we are a work in progress oh yeah a tiny bit every day and a lot of times it's invisible to the naked eye like like healing is you know when you have a wound you're obsessed with it. You're very aware of it. You're, you know, you're, you're um, addressing the wound or whatever. And this could be, you know, a metaphor or a real wound. And then one day when you're not paying attention, you realize that you're, you're healed. That's right. That's right. Years ago, I took, I took about two years off of dating because um, every woman I would go out with, I'd make the same mistakes. And, I, and it got to the point where I couldn't stand that reflex just making those same mistakes whether it's conversationally or behaviorally i was like oh here i go again and so i thought i need to like i need to step away from the playing field and just like improve improve that element otherwise it's just going to be the same and i don't know if i could have the stomach for that well yeah i mean recognizing patterns is the first step toward self-improvement when you know because it's hard to recognize that you're repeating things over and over again but the day that that does become evident to you that's a big day because now you know like oh this may not even be about the present this might be the past like a like an old eight track tape being played over and over again yeah <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like it's like those emotions are that old that eight track tape was the state of the art when you first felt them and you and you're still doing it now maybe it's time to replace that with a relevant emotion, something that's actually authentic to now. That, that's a big one for me. It's a big one. Do you think artistically it's easier to recognize patterns? You know, like where you go, oh, I'm doing that thing that I always do. Artistically, I can correct that. That's, that, that's more apparent than like in a social, than your you social make, life, right? You make a really good point. As artists, we are very quick not to want to repeat ourselves, right? Right. And we can recognize it really fast. Go, whoop, there's that thing I always do. I, you know, I'm, I need to, I need to find a, a new expression or a new, a new way in, you know, to this idea. But emotionally, we, 
we don't see that repetition as easily. We don't recognize it as easily. And, and you would think, I remember when somebody told me that Bob Dylan actually had a heroin problem at one point. I thought, Bob Dylan, shouldn't have he invented a drug to be addicted to? Like how square? Heroin? You know, <laughs> come on. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about like, as creative people, we're always looking for a different approach, you know, and we want to make sure we're changing and we're, you know, we're insistent on it. You know, we do not want to repeat ourselves, but as human beings, um, it's harder to be aware of that and be as much of an advocate for it, you know? And that, that makes me always think about Elvis Costello, where I think like that guy, that guy seemed very intent on not making the same record twice. That's true. That is true. Um, David Bowie is probably a better example. Yeah. You never, when, 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 you know, when you heard that he had a new record coming out, there was no way to predict what that would be. That's true. You're right. No way. He was, he was the ultimate kind of like Salvador Dali, you know, or uh, Miles Davis, another one, you know, uh, some of those records he put out in the early seventies are like completely unlistenable, but they're brilliant. In, in the freedom that he gives himself, you know? Yeah, and like Diamond Dogs and Low literally have nothing in common. Like there's, there, you couldn't pick two different records, right? Like those are totally different. And even the two records he put out before he died, one was a jazz album. I mean, what, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like really, that guy really, uh, he, he, um, he put pressure on himself, you know, in, in a good way. Uh, he challenged himself. He would be the ultimate, I think, the, uh, as far as examples. Dylan's sort of that way. You really never know what he's going to do next, but Bowie more so because Bowie would have a different haircut with each album. So, you know, that makes it... <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> conceptual, right. It's conceptual clothing, you know, hair, design. It, all, it was all happening at the same time in that guy's mind, you know? How is this going to look? What's the choreography? What's the wardrobe? What's the haircut? What's the music? What's the instrumentation? And what's the stage design, you know? And who's the character? Who's the character, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I have nothing against Green Day. I, I like them, but, I, but the records all sound the same. And I wonder, I wonder why that's okay. I mean, maybe because it works and maybe it's successful. Um, well, the, well, the Ramones, <clears throat> same yeah. thing. You know, I, I don't think they ever had a horn section on their albums. Um, <laughs> no, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, the Ramones... Um, I mean, there were a lot of acts like that, you know, ACDC, you know, um, they're the comfort zone bands for me. It's like they're, just knowing they're there and that they aren't changing makes me feel good. Yeah, I think you're right about that. We, we do need that. I mean, maybe Animal Boy represented a little bit like I remember that that Bonzo goes to Bitbird song. But that that definitely was a real sonic shift, I thought. But I mean, a lot of the trademark stuff is still there. You're right. You're right. The Ramones. Um, what about for you? when you when you challenge yourself um does it feel is it scary or is it exciting or is it both it's both um i like the risk i like going on stage sometimes with a band that has never heard my music uh, you know like a like when i tour europe like now i'm touring with my band from philadelphia and they know my music and we know a lot of songs because we've been playing together for like 40 years but um sometimes when i'm in europe and, and in other cities too, 
in America, I'll have a local rhythm section backing me up. And I'm never happier when, than when the rhythm section behind me is falling apart because they don't know what the next chord is. It's really an exciting thing for me to uh, have that shifting sand under my feet. But it is also scary because you could really bomb and lose the audience entirely and be accused of being unprofessional in those moments. But it's worth the risk for me. I really like it. In, in terms of when you do collaborate, when you, the, the process for you is, is very, it's very, it's private and then you take it public. When you take the, the finished product or the piece that needs to be collaborated on and you take it public like to somebody or um, whatever it might be, are you good at taking notes or are you good at taking any kind of criticism? Are you receptive? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was I know, fast. <laughs> I, I know I'm right. Uh, even if they tell me I'm, even if they tell me I'm wrong, it's my career, you know? Yeah. Um, I, 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 uh, I wouldn't release it or I wouldn't put it on stage if I didn't think that, if I didn't agree with it, you know? Um, you know, I'm fortunate in that sense that I'm not signed to a major label where um, the A&R department has a meeting with you and, they're, and they tell you they're going to drop you because the new direction you're going in is, is not the one they want you to go in. You know, um, I've never been marketable enough to have that kind of pressure on me. So um, I go my own way, you know, um, and I, I've yet to put out metal machine music. So I think I'm doing OK. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, if you had been in that situation, if, if you'd been signed to Electra in 1997 and that, and that had been put on you, would you have responded favorably, do you think, or is it hard to say? Well, I had it happen with me, actually. In 1985, I had a demo deal with Warner Brothers. Marshall Crenshaw just put out his version of my song, I'm Sorry, But So Is Brenda Lee. So Warner Brothers, they wanted to know who this guy was who wrote this song, because that song is sardonic and you know, it's a serious song with a with a weird title. They thought I was like a you know a Randy Newman kind of guy, and they signed me to a demo deal. And I went in with my band, and we ended up sounding like Paul Revere and the Raiders. You know, <laughs> they were very confused. And then they came out and saw me live, and they, you know, they told me we think you should get rid of your band and take yourself more seriously. And I I just said I can't do that. I, I, I know that I won't be happy and I don't think that what I'll end up giving you will be what you want anyway, even after I make, I compromise and make myself unhappy. I think you're going to be unhappy. I was lucky in the sense that I was already 30 years old by then. You know, if I was 21, I might've went for it and, and lost my soul. You know? Yeah. But I was already, you know, I, you know, I was, I was, working as a landscaper and I, you know, I drove a delivery truck and uh, I worked, I went to school at night to, to learn offset printing, you know, I didn't go to college. So I was living about 12 years as an, as an adult in the real world as basically a physical laborer for the most part. So when I'm sitting in the, the gleaming tower, uh, you know, near Rockefeller center in the Warner brothers building, and they're telling me what I need to do. I already had enough life experience and I knew myself well enough to know that I should not do what they're suggesting. My manager kicked me under the table during that meeting really hard because <laughs> he wanted to commission the, the advance, you know. But uh, no, I, I, I guess I, I've always known 
something about myself. I don't know what. Um, uh, you know, like, like it's a self-knowingness, I guess is what you would call it, that has kept me from uh, falling, you know, into temptation, I guess. But when you frame it like that, you say, look, I was 30 and I was working. I was working. I was an adult for 12 years on my own. You would almost think that the temptation to play the game would have been even more tempting because it, it, it represented an escape from what you were doing. Not that what you were doing was was bad, but it was probably hard. Um, and this is like a, a chance to jump that and go somewhere else. I, I'm I'm impressed that you didn't because uh, so many people I think would have would have gone the other way. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I I really don't know what anyone else would do. I just know that um, I kept coming back to the same thing, which is I need to be myself, you know. And I like all kinds of music, and I like all kinds of energy. I like ballads. I like Randy Newman, but I also love Link Ray. And I didn't see any reason why I couldn't do all of it. And that's where the marketing people got really confused. I mean, that was the end of me being considered by major labels because I wanted to play soul music, surf music, country, bluegrass, folk, bossa nova, uh, punk rock. Uh, you know, I wanted, it, I wanted, you know, the whole thing. And that's kind of what I've done through my whole career is just when I write a song or I get a song in my head, it's coming from all the records I've listened to, that's everything from Roger Miller and Merle Haggard, you know, to, um, you know, Paul Revere and the Raiders or Link Ray or Wilson Pickett. I mean, it's, it's all there, you know, and so I, wanted was... to, I, want, I wanted the freedom to, I always felt that that was my, my true calling as a musician or a, a provider of music, I guess, um, was to be myself. It's a beautiful day. Today and tomorrow is gonna be the same way. There ain't nothing bothering me now that I'm living in my own reality. The telephone rings, but I don't worry. When I'm on the move, I don't hurry. Time and trouble mean nothing to me. Now that I'm living in my own reality. In my own reality, there's plenty of room for you and me. In my own reality, we will forever be free. We will forever be free.
forever be free. We will forever be free. We will forever be free. was pretty it was pretty tribal you know where like you had to be this guy or that guy there was never there was no fusion you know it was like marshall crenshaw was in the marshall crenshaw lane and rem was in the rem lane like everyone new order it was all it was all very tribal and from metal to pop to whatever it was all very separate um sort of like the breakfast club right where it's sort of like the, the days where you could look at someone and you knew what records they were listening to or not listening to. Oh, definitely uh, by, by their, by their wardrobe. Yeah. By their wardrobe. Yeah. Yeah. And so like the, the versatility that you were craving, you weren't going to get, like you're, you're totally right about that. Yeah. And it was confusing. And, and also when I did get a record deal, it was with a, an independent label that catered to college radio and college radio at that time was REM, the replacements, um, not sure of the names of all the other bands, but you, you know, the era of smithereens. Yeah. And, um, and I didn't fit in there either because I wasn't jangly enough. You know, I didn't have enough of a folk rock element or a 12 string guitar you know, in every song. So we were on bills, you know, we were, um, out on the road a lot because we were booked by Frank Riley who booked the replacements and a bunch of, you know, a bunch of bands, violent femmes. And, um, we would be the opening act for everybody. And, you know, we were playing blues and surf and country and, you know, you know what I do. And so we were always the odd act. So it, it was always, uh, it, was, it was just, um, I always felt for the marketing people though. I never, I never had that anger toward the record industry that a lot of people have. It's us against them. You know, it's art versus commerce. I understand commerce, you know, before I got a record deal, I had to balance a budget, you know, my whole adult life at the end of the week and make sure I had a roof over my head. I understand, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, you need money coming in before you put, have money going out. I just, you know, and they would look at me and they figure, how are we going to make money on this guy? And, and I didn't have a good answer for that. I really didn't have a good answer for that. They couldn't market me as just one thing. Cause you were on You were signed to Enigma, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they were, they seemed like there was a lot more, a lot more, um, latitude where you could you could you know because i think with enigma and restless there was like everything from game theory to mojo nixon to i mean there there was there was a versatile lineup there and they also had a metal label metal blade yeah and they put out that first poison album so um yeah they were they were a good label to be on actually they they understood me as as well as anyone could i think yeah, it's interesting. And so no regrets. You never, no sleepless nights over that one. It was a, that was a very, it was an easy decision for you. Yeah. I don't have any regrets about anything. Um, did you ever see bands play like when you were touring with them, like, and think like, oh, you guys are pigeonholing this, this band's going to be stuck in this lane. Did you see it like that? Or did you, did you not pay too much attention to that? 
I kind of did. I thought that if you adhered to, a, if you got a hit during a time when you were wearing a certain wardrobe and had a certain sound, they were going to ask you to repeat that. And then when, when, when you're old enough for the oldies circuit, just hope that the, none of those songs were sung in falsetto. <laughs> that's really hard to pull off when you're over a certain age you know yeah and uh yeah i always felt that i felt um i also thought you know i would meet these bands off stage and it'd be really funny people you know and then they would get on stage and be dead serious and i never understood that either but that's just me you know i'm uh i'm, I'm kind of uh you know i don't know how else to be other than than myself. I don't know how to be another person or even portray a, a person different than myself. I, I'm a terrible actor for that reason. I've tried acting a couple of times and it feels like I'm lying because I'm not being myself. It's I'm not the right guy for it, you know? Did you do some films? I didn't know that. Oh, you, nothing you would see, like student films. I, I was actually in an underground film in 1974 when I was 19 this experimental film called Armageddon 74. And uh, it's like a nine minute short film that I'm in that just resurfaced recently. And uh, a non-speaking role, um, I kind of stumble around with a, with a bottle of whiskey in my hand uh, <laughs> in it. But uh, uh, I've done a little bit of acting because um, you know people have approached me and they thought that since what I do on stage is effective that I might be good you know in front of a camera too but I, I don't know how to leave myself you know I don't know how not to not be me now a lot of people they really can do it easily and I really admire that and then there are also people who need to do that because they don't like who they are so throwing themselves into a role is the ultimate escape escaping from you know who they are who they may not be at peace with you know I remember last time we talked you told me you run into Marshall Crenshaw and he was coming back from a guitar lesson yeah <laughs> I'd never forgotten that because I love that you told me that because I remember thinking like yeah you have to keep working on your craft and for you do you have do you have a sort of Crenshaw-like discipline in terms of your own your own work ethic in terms of like a specific instrument not really I, I I've gotten back into playing drums I started out as a drummer and um, I've gotten back into playing drums and I'm good again, finally. Um, and, um, but for me, it's more about lyric writing, I guess, is, is the thing that I'm always working on in my head. How to simplify, how to say things with less words um, and reading, inputting and listening to like Tom T. Hall or Roger yeah. Miller or Leonard Cohen or you know, these, these lyricists that and Chuck Berry being the ultimate for me, because he combines incredible stories with, you know, the invention of rock and roll at the same time, just unbelievable. So I think maybe lyrically is that would be my guitar lesson probably is that I'm, uh, you know, checking out other writers and working on my own craft. Yeah. And like the economy of Hemingway or, you know, I, I just I just read Farewell to Arms for the first time. And it was just like, I finished it on Christmas Eve, which is, you know, not the best book to finish. <laughs> like, wow. It's like one of the bleakest endings ever. Um, <laughs> but I remember looking at just marveling at the economy of the lines and like Hemingway and Carver, 
And even Chekhov, I think to some degree, you look at them, you go, oh, I could do that. And it's like, no, you can't. <laughs> They're too, like, they're such artists, but they look, it looks so simple, but it's not. And um, I think for lyric writing, the best training for that is just reading. I agree. And, and, uh, and eavesdropping in, in public. Yeah. That's where a lot of the best ideas come from, you know, how people really speak. I was just reading um, The Stranger by Camus again. And two things struck me, the economy of, well, of course, it's a translation, so I don't know originally uh, if it was this lean and mean, but I was really impressed with the economy. But also, I forgot how funny he is. He's really a funny writer. Some of the descriptions just make you laugh out loud. Like Chekhov, you'll be in the middle of a tragedy, reading a tragedy, and then somebody displays you know, some kind of act of vanity. You know, they walk into the room and they're dressed a certain way. And the way Chekhov describes it makes you laugh out loud, you know? Yeah. I love that. And that's, that's, that's what I, as a writer, I don't feel that I need to care about being funny in the middle of a serious song. Some of the best writers have done it. Roger Miller, John Prine, even Chris Christopherson, uh, Sunday Morning Coming Down. You know, I, I, the beer I had for breakfast wasn't bad, so I had another for dessert. Mm. That's funny. But that song is tragic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and he goes to his closet and finds his cleanest, dirty shirt. That's funny. Except the guy, you know, may kill himself before the song's over. You know, it's like, right. that's amazing to me. And the, and the permission that those guys give themselves to be funny in the middle of a larger story and a deeper, heavier story with emotional depth, um, that's always really impressed me. And that's, that's kind of the, the area that I'm always working in, you know, how to get better at doing that. I've always been fascinated by the relationship between tragedy and comedy. And I mean, like in Shakespeare's most tragic plays, there are funny moments, there's comic mm -hmm. relief. And, you know, dramaturgically, there's like on the masks of, I can't remember what it's called, but like tragedy and comedy are like, they're connected, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and and and, I, and and in real life, like when you know, like in, in the middle of like a very tragic moment, like you know, like a loved one is dying and you're gathered in the hospital, somebody's going to say something, or a nurse is going to come in, or something inappropriate is going to happen where everybody laughs. It's just part of life. It's you know? part of life. You're right. It's just, it's just part of life. And there's ironic humor is always there, and sometimes you don't need time to pass before you sense the irony sometimes it's right there in the present moment like oh my god that's ironic <laughs> yeah when you are playing live say you're playing in Majorca, and what about your between song conversation or or stage patter like do you do you think about that in terms of how it might reach a, a, an audience which is not american do you change it do you like how do you how do you read that room I don't speak between songs that much in, in uh, foreign countries mm. um, for that reason. I met T-Bone Burnett uh, back in the early 80s, and I was, I was getting ready to go on my first European tour as a solo acoustic act. I forget who I was opening for, but I was going to be playing in Spain and France and Italy and I think Germany. And I asked him for, for some advice because I had heard that he'd just gotten back. And, and he said, don't talk between songs because uh, half the people aren't going to understand what you're saying because they don't speak English. 
What about if you're playing in Philadelphia or New Jersey? Like, does that that changes, right? Well, that turns into a Quaker meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm being heckled the whole time, and I man, I love being heckled. I because you know, think you, you know, uh, thinking on my feet is like uh, my, one of my favorite things. You know, again, the risk. I like that risk, you know, and. Um, and no one has, you know, come come up on stage and slap me in the face yet. So I'm doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't play near Will Smith's house. No, no, I I, I I talk a lot in between songs, and I none of us prepared. Um, and some nights there it, it, there just really isn't much to say, and some nights it's just um, too irresistible, you know. And the audience, my audiences have a tendency to feel that they have the right to you know, chime in whenever they feel like it, which is interesting because I've never encouraged it, but it happens. I think there's a, a comfortable um, relationship that people feel uh, with me uh, that they're allowed to yell at me. I don't know. <laughs> what are they yelling at you? I mean, what do they, what, what do they want from you? Well, it's like, I'll say something and they'll yell something back and I go, oh, yeah, well, that's funny because, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's not insult humor. It's, right. it's more my observational humor and then people uh, chiming in, but it's, it's great. Uh, the audiences in Philly and Jersey are the best because they know I'm from there and it shows, you know, that I'm from Jersey. I mean, my, my sense of humor um, is for the most part, a definite, a very East coast kind of sense of humor. There's a, you know, a, a, a kind of a self-effacing, uh, nature to it that is recognizable by people from the area like sometimes in california people will think uh they won't realize that i'm being sarcastic out here uh like in jersey no matter what's going on you go eh, that, that figures or with our luck blah 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 or if it's raining outside you go you, you say beautiful day ain't it you know that's what you do <laughs> right you know everything is like the opposite of and and in California, people say, well, why would you say that? It's, it's raining. And I'm like, well, because I'm kidding. Oh. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. I was raised by New Yorkers, so I get it. But there is a kind of literal thing. Californians are very literal. And so it's sort of like. Well, when, yeah, in that sense, they're not, they're, they're, it's great because they, they still have innocence, you know? Like, oh, I believe everything everybody says, which I admire, you know? I'm actually envious of that because I immediately, you know, like, Whenever a politician op opens his mouth, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and because I grew up, you know, in an area where a lot of corruption and graft and the whole thing, you know, the, the, the you know, the wards in the city that are being controlled by these guys, you know, these ward leaders that, you know, everybody's on the take and you just kind of have a cynical attitude about how the world works. And uh, when you get out into the West, if you're in Colorado and you talk like like you're from New Jersey, you know. I remember Tom Waits once said that um, the behavior that a New Yorker has on a daily basis would get you arrested in a small town in the Midwest. <laughs> He's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody looks shifty. The minute they leave New York, it, it doesn't work. You know, the way people look at each other in the subway and they're passing each other in the street, everybody's a little suspicious and they're a little guarded and they're doing their thing. If you pluck that person out and put them in, you know, small town in Kansas, they would definitely be, you know, picked up and taken to the police station and questioned. 
<laughs> it's so true. I yes. know. I know. I, you know, I made the mistake. I, 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 you know, I teach in college in the daytime. It's my day job. And I was teaching two sections of the same class. Then my eight o'clock class, I, I made a joke and it really landed like it killed. And um, for, the ten, for the 10 o'clock class, I made the same joke and it bombed. And I was like, oh man, like what works for one crowd doesn't work for another. Do you, when you're playing, if you land something, if you say something that actually really connects, you get a great reaction. Are you tempted to reuse it the next night or do you challenge yourself to never do that? Well, even on a larger level, um, I'll do a show and get four encores in you know Atlanta, Georgia. The next night I'm playing in, I don't know where, the nearest Nashville and nothing. Same exact show, the same exact energy, the same exact intention, not the same exact show like song for song, but the same intention and the same energy and the same generosity that I showed the night before is not appreciated at all. <laughs> what so, is that? I don't know, but it's the curse of being on tour because every, every touring artist will tell you this, you know, like you're, you're the king of the world one night and then you're just, uh, you know, a band that nobody cares about the next night in the next city. Um, it's a very strange thing. So you, so you basically have to know it's not going to work, right? Just, just, and just say, challenge yourself to do something new each time. Well, not necessarily. Um, I just write it off till I just blame the audience. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not, yeah. It's, it's not. never my fault. I, you know, I don't take criticism well and every audience is wrong if they don't like me. You know, it's, you know. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a simple man. <laughs> yeah. Did it, um, did it surprise you when you found that you were doing so well in terms of, you know, being, being really kind of cherished overseas is a really cool thing. And, you know, you never know how that stuff goes, but um, not so much that it, that it happened, but that it's also maintained that audience is still there for you overseas. It's a beautiful thing. Um, when I first, when I put out my first record, it was starting to, it was doing a well, doing pretty well in the States. It was like 1986, I guess, you know, um, and I started getting all these fan letters from from Europe and I got one remember the first one I got was from France and it was a guy who was obviously using an English French dictionary when he wrote his letter to me and at one point he was asking me besides your new album do you have any other recorded music and if you do could you please send me adhesive and I was like huh so I look it's so like so and I realized oh he means tape <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I, I really, this is great. I love having an audience like this. And um, we, I, the first time I went over was in the late 80s. And it was amazing. It was really amazing. We played at the uh, Trans Musical Festival in, in France, in Rennes. And uh, from that point on, it's, and I, I'm just, the fact that it's like what you said, it's, it's a loyal audience and it gets passed down from generation to generation. Like they're, they bring their kids and then their kids are growing up and then the kids bring their kids. So for the last 40 years now, almost 40 years, um, I can always go over there and tour. And I'm actually recognized on the street, like in Madrid, you know, uh, it, it's sort of like a fantasy where I never really wanted to be famous. Like I didn't want to be Elton John or anything. I just wanted to make a living making music because I wasn't before, you know, it was very simple for me. 
and I was raising a kid too, you know, um, you know, I became, I became a dad when I was 20 years old. So all that time I, you know, I've had responsibility all this time. <clears throat> so it was pretty easy for me to not care about being a rock star and care more about making a living. And Europe uh, gave that to me to actually go over there and be paid well to perform and have large crowds. And uh, it's, it's, um, it's really been great. And I'm looking forward to going over again. We were supposed to go over right before lockdown. So this, this is a rain check tour we're doing in May. Did, did, was there ever a thought in your brain that you were like, hey, maybe I'll relocate over there, pull a silto and, and, uh, and live there? Or is that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. When my son turned 18, I was thinking of moving to Madrid and becoming a, you know, the local rock star. You know? Right. Uh, Kevin Ayers. Are you familiar with him? Oh, yeah. He lived in Mallorca. And he was, yeah, he was the local rock star, the British rock star of Mallorca, you know, and uh, I definitely entertained it. And um, I chose to come out to LA to pursue film music. And if that didn't work out, I was definitely going to go to Madrid. But um, when I got to LA, within three months of moving here, I got a TV show that ended up becoming a hit. So I never left. I, last time we chatted, you were sort of consciously sort of staying away from that kind of thing. Are you are you back to doing that and more regularly or? No, I'm not doing it at all. I'm still doing exact, it exactly where I was. Yeah, I retired. When that 70s show went off the air, I retired from film music. I did it for 11 years. And uh, the deadlines were super, super intense. And um, it was never really my world. I loved everybody in it and I loved the work. But, you know, I'm I'm a musician. I'm not a entertainment business guy you know right is there a, a feeling now that the your creative output will increase like post pandemic do you think like you're going to release a bunch of records have you thought about that like oh, i'll put a bunch of stuff out life is short lockdown could happen again who knows you know it's interesting with me what, what happens like as i write songs in spurts like all of a sudden i'll write like a bunch of songs really fast. Like they come to me really like I'm absorbing and I'm thinking and I'm just living my life. Then all of a sudden the song ideas start coming and they always come to me when I'm either driving or walking. I'm, 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 they never come to me when I'm holding a, an instrument in my hand. They're usually fully written in my mind. <clears throat> and then I pick up a guitar and figure out what the chords are supposed to be for what I wrote. So I kind of work backwards uh, compared to other people, I think. And then when that writing um surge ends i'm completely apathetic about writing or creating and then it starts all over again and it's involuntary so i never really plan too much um i always just kind of follow my instincts what was it about punk rock that you loved so much i think that because i mean people who listen to your records might be surprised that you that you're a punk fan um, and I would think like a band like the Saints would have really appealed to you with that horn section and those killer vocals. Like, um, I'm not sure if they were one of your one of the bands you liked, but I always imagine you might have. Um, well, the Cramps, Cramps is what, you know, did it for me. You know, I was a rockabilly fan. Right. Already. Right. And the Cramps come along 1977, 78. And they were kind of the first. They were the punk band that I related to the most because they were really respectful of 50s rock and roll and they were recycling it which thrilled me you know i love that stuff and it was hard for me you know the, the early 70s i got out, i got out of high school in 1973 
And I was already a, a proficient musician, but, you know, Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull, uh, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, the Edgar Winter Group. There was no place for what I liked, which was the Flaming Groovies, Link Ray, Gene Vincent, you know. Um, <clears throat> the Cramps, to me, opened a door. They, they, they opened a the door for me. I thought, wow, it might be possible for me to pull in all the stuff I love and have a career because they're doing it. I love the Sex Pistols. I just love the way the record sounded. And I was a huge fan of the Stooges, you know, already. Like in 1970, I bought Funhouse. I'm finding out now, like it was the week it came out. I went to this record store. There was a boutique record store head shop in my area. And I walked in and I was cutting lawns uh, in the summer for money. And I had a $5 bill in my pocket. And I walked into the record museum, it was called. And there was this record being played on the stereo there that was unbelievable. And I was like, what is this? And the guy said, it's the second Stooges album. And I said, well, I want it. And he goes, well, I'm not going to sell it to you because we only have one copy. <laughs> and I said, you have to sell it to me. He goes, no, I'm not going to, man. I'm, I'm like, you have to. And we got into this big argument. Finally, he sold it to me. I gave him my $5 bill. And I took that record home and I probably listened to it, I don't know, thousands of times, you know. I know every note of that record in my head. So when punk rock came around, you know, it wasn't really a new feeling for me. That energy and that attitude had already been living inside me. But the funny thing is I ran into that guy from the record store. I was playing a gig in Philly and this guy comes up and says, do you remember me? And I go, no. And he goes, I'm the guy who sold you that Stooges record. And I go, oh, thank you. And he goes, yeah, I'm still mad because it took us three weeks to get another copy in. <laughs> he was he was harboring that all these years yeah geez yeah i mean it's like the whole point is to sell it yeah that's what i tried to explain to him i was like you are a record seller i am a record buyer i don't understand what's happening here yeah he, he acted <laughs> like you came into his bedroom and you're like I i'll know. buy that album <laughs> yeah i have a five dollar bill it's not a counterfeit you can check <laughs> <laughs> Give me that record. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that he that he uh, that he remembered you. My God, he did. Yeah. Uh, well, I was kind of on. You know, I was such a fanatic about music when I was young that I annoyed everyone with my enthusiasm. I couldn't contain my enthusiasm and my and my curiosity and my need to get more music. So, whatever record store I hung out at, I, I used to go bug people at radio stations. You know, I was just obsessed, and I had a lot of energy. And so anyone, still... anyone who met me back then is like, oh, that, you know, the, like they just shake their heads like that guy was too intense. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still <clears throat> keeping an eye out for new stuff? Like, do you still do you still keep your ear to the ground? Oh, yeah. I'm a wet leg fan. Have you heard wet leg? Yet? I just heard them two weeks ago. and I love them. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm my ears are open. Uh, not as much as they used to be. Uh, I don't I, I, I don't bump into the music um, like I used to so quickly and easily before. But now that COVID's over, I think I'm going to go out uh, and you know, I'll look in the paper and see three bands I've never heard of and just go. You know, I think I'm going to start doing that again because I used to do that. Yeah, that's a cool thing. I got a band for you. I, there's this band, Bad <laughs> Nerves. Have you heard them? No, it's a great name, though. Great name. And uh, oof, I mean, they, they're sort of like the... Uh, I don't know, like uh, hard to explain, but they kind of remind me of like uh, the Misfits meets uh, 
the Ramones meets the Buzzcocks. Wow. Yeah, British band. And I'm nuts about them. Yeah, try them. Bad nerves. Just crazy about this band. Um, so you, you're taking off soon. Are you leaving uh, for Europe soon? Oh, no, that's not until the end of May. Okay. Um, so, um, but I have record release day coming up uh, April 23rd. And I'm doing a record release show in the middle of the desert in a, a roadhouse, literally in the middle of nowhere. That's where my record release party is going to be. And there's a, a record store in town out there now called White Vinyl. I mean, white label vinyl. And I'm going to do an afternoon show there and then a, a nighttime release party. And uh, that's kind of my next thing coming up. Feels good to have something on, on, the, uh, on the horizon, right? Like a new album coming out. Like, here we go. It's fun. Well, Record Store Day is a great opportunity because when they approached me, they asked me if I had anything, you know, and I didn't. I was recording some things, you know, during lockdown, but I didn't really have anything. I didn't, I didn't know it was an album. And when they said, well, you know, if you have something and you can get it manufactured in time, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll feature it, you know, it, you'll be part of Record Store Day. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, knowing that the last time I made a record, knowing it was going to be a 12 inch LP was in 1986. Jeez. Because that was the only format there was. I mean, CDs existed if you were Michael Jackson or Billy Joel, but not for, you know, independent artists. And, that, you know, to make it an LP only. So I went in, you know, like I, I went into this project thinking of side one and side two. I could picture it in my mind, the whole thing. The artwork, while you know, it, it was a great concept to be, uh, to be serving musically. Well, man, it's a, it's good to have you back, and um, I'm glad that it you know business as usual. You can go overseas and uh, you know see your fans over there, make a living, and uh, get back to the business of of uh, of music. Yeah, I'm very happy about it, and uh, it was great talking to you. But I recommend you you read something different next year before Christmas Eve. Yeah, man, can you believe I did that? What a, what a, I was reading, I was like, God, this is, I, there was a little bit of hope in the end. And then it was like, nope, everybody no. dies. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you gave it away. Yeah, I gave it away. Uh, so anyone yeah. out there who hasn't read Hemingway, uh, Farewell, is Farewell to Arms, is that what it was? Farewell to Arms. And it's so brilliant yeah. because it's like, everybody dies and he just walks out of the hospital. And it's like, now what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's kinda, so bleak. Kind of like, 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 like the end of this conversation. <laughs> we gotta leave on a happier note, Dad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, gonna, but no, it was really great talking to you, and, I, and I'm 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 really happy we hooked up again. This is great. He's like an old friend. Love chatting with Ben. We'll have him back on. Uh, Instagram is where you need to go to find out what's happening in the world of Ben Vaughn, which, by the way, is the name of the album you should be getting. The brand new one on vinyl. Get it. You'll be so happy you did. Instagram, Ben Vaughn Music. 
alexgreenonline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. Bombshellradio.com will keep you informed about our radio station. If you want to follow me on Twitter, please do so at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends at the next cocktail party that you go to. How would that come up in conversation? And who's going to cocktail parties anymore? Well, if one comes up and you're there, please mention us. Thank you, as always, for listening to our show week in and week out. Great shows coming up. Watch us on Instagram for announcements on that front. Let's close the show with a longer listen to New Jersey Rock and Roll by Ben Vaughn. Enjoy it. And thank you again for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. I got high, but I'm still feeling low. Walking in the rain with no place to go. Searching for something. That I know I need some New Jersey rock and roll There's a pain in my heart A pain in my soul Thoughts in my head I can't control The way I feel couldn't be more cold I need some New Jersey rock and roll Rock and roll, rock and roll Come find me and take me home Take me home where I belong I've been away too long I came out west where the palm trees grow But I can't relate To these streets of gold The days are warm But the nights are cold I need some New Jersey rock and roll
That's what I need now Rock and roll Nothing else will do Rock and roll Not California Rock and roll Not even New York City Rock and roll Take me home